Attention Kingdom Hospital Medical Staff. Attention. The New England Robins are playing in the World Series, which means all staff are on forced break until the end of today's game. Any superstitions or magic you may possess to help the Robins win are, as always, mandatory. This concludes your announcements. Stay tuned for Peanuts and Cracker Jacks. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King Book Club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And uh, Ben, do we do we have Ben? Uh, I thought I saw him earlier. Well, I, I guess we don't have Ben. Maybe he's watching the game. So instead, we have returning to join us, Paul Workman. Hello, everybody. And today we are covering episode nine of Kingdom Hospital, Butterfingers. And we have CM leading our discussion. CM, take it away. Thanks, Josh. Our usual disclaimer, we are recording remotely, so fuck our audio. (laughs) And Paul, we already interviewed you and asked you all the amazing Stephen King questions, so I'll just say glad to have you back. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be back. Thank you for having me. So I know other stuff happened in the last episode, but all I can remember is that Stegman might get sucked into helicopter blades. (laughs) Yeah, there are a lot of helicopter talk, a lot of helicopter safety we learned about. We also find out that Mary died an even more brutal death than the mill fire. Massingale's prank backfires horribly, which leads to some interesting questions about Elmer and his maybe psychic abilities. And we learn that Aunt Bear is not only an accomplished judge, but he also dabbles in surgery, though not so accomplished. And we open this episode on the World Series, And the entire hospital is into this. Even Mary and Aunt Bear are like, oh, what's going to happen? I love that they were as invested as everyone else. Oh, I I like to think that everybody's into baseball like that. So it didn't surprise me at all. (laughs) (laughs) We cut briefly to Abel and Kristen. And Abel tells her that baseball is a sad game. And we find out why he says this a moment later when we cut to a brand new character, Earl... Error Candleton, a.k.a. Butterfingers. He is sitting alone in his apartment above the mission, listening to the game with a gun to his head. And I think I made this joke last episode, but I'm going to make it again. Also, how I listen to baseball. Only if you put a gun to my head. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so it's... See, last time you said that's how you watch it. This, you clarified someone else has to hold it to your head. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. (laughs) We're going to spend the majority of this episode with Earl as we cut to his backstory. One important thing we should just go ahead and clear out of the way. Uh, We'll get more into it later. But uh, for those who don't know, the Robins are the Red Sox. Yes. That is, Stephen King is a giant Red Sox fan. And so at any time it's talking about the Robins, it's... Or you see how the Robins fans react. Like the Red Sox fans are some of the most passionate fans in the universe uh, yes. of anything ever. Yes. And so all of their reactions are that varying degree of like classic uh, Red Sox fans. I like that Stephen King's from Maine, though. So he doesn't make them the Boston Robins. He makes them the New England Robins. Yeah, <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Such a nice touch. We are in 1987 at the World Series and Earl is fucking stuff up you guys wait right i don't well, you I, you two are gonna have to carry this section <laughs> okay well i mean they're down to a 
I guess we're going to compare this to what this is one-to-one ratio on. He's not necessarily fucking stuff up, but he, he makes one critical error that does cost the team the game. He plays fine through probably the rest of the game. It's just this one moment at the very end of the game where everything's hanging on it. And it's the worst time to get the error. And I mean, it's not just that it's the end of a game. It's the end of the World Series. It's the last out of the last inning. It is a pop fly to first base, which is easy, easy out. And he just, uh, I I don't know, he, he just misjudges the distance. And the ball, we watch the ball drop just in front of his glove and hit the ground and they lose. And it is heartbreaking. Uh, what What's the most heartbreaking about it is that immediately uh, we see the incident. We see how disappointed everybody is. But then this is followed by a montage of how this haunts him for the rest of his life. Uh, right after the game, uh, you don't see his teammates even talking to him. You see a fan throw a ball at the back of his head. Uh, you see scenes of him out in public where strangers are throwing baseballs at him. A, a classroom full of kids. Years later, they even denote the time jump. That is like, yeah. <laughs> and a classroom full of children as he's giving a motivational speech about not letting one mistake destroy you and moving on and taking the bright light, the bright side, they just pummel him with baseballs. It was just, it was rough to watch. I felt so bad for him. This scene was so nuts that at times I thought, is he hallucinating some of these attacks? Because there are scenes where baseballs just roll to him out of nowhere, like with the word butterfingers marked on it. So I, I had a hard time figuring out if he was kind of imagining these attacks or if this town is that crazy over baseball? B. Option B. <laughs> okay. For sure. I don't think any of those were hallucinations. I I had questions about the one that you you just said, CM, the, the Butterfingers mm-hmm. baseball, but everything else seemed pretty legitimate to me. Though the, the classroom with all the baseballs seemed a little hardcore. Yeah. You know, okay, my favorite thing that happens. So the, the ball with Butterfingers written on it is rolled back to him while he's in the Christ only mission church. And uh, the thing that I loved such a nice little touch was that over playing over the church and the guy, you know, preaching the gospel was take me out to the ball game. Yeah. Just shows that illustration of that baseball is a religion to these people it's more important than a religion because you're hearing it over the church and i just thought that was a real uh, a real subtle technique to drive that home it was very disconcerting too to hear those two things at the same time not enough peanuts and cracker jacks at (laughs) church let me tell you (laughs) i'd love to get a box of cracker jacks at church and pull out a little crucifix that'd be nice (laughs) oh god when we come too many too many pop flies in church though (laughs) Oh, only a Catholic church. Oh! (laughs) So when we cut back to present day, we understand why he has a gun to his head, I guess. He's had a rough life, and he has put a lot of money on this game, and if they lose, so does he. They lose. He pulls the trigger, and this is going to come back, but I'm just going to mention it here. 
I swear that at this time, Sally senses a disturbance, which we later find out is Mary warning her about something. And we're going to get to that. But what I do like is our infamous EMT scene. They're rushing Earl to New Kingdom, but not before making a kind of pit stop. (laughs) I had to rewind this like four times and I still don't know what happened. (laughs) I don't either, but they they hit Stegman's car and his windshield shatters. It looked like they popped up one of the traffic cones that he put around the car and it flew through his windshield. Oh, (laughs) yes. Okay, that makes sense. And I didn't Uh, catch where he was parked this time, but I can only assume it was the ambulance loading zone. (laughs) Probably. Meanwhile, we see how this loss is affecting Mama and Stakey. Brenda is in tears and Stegman is not being affectionate despite agreeing last episode that he would be. He's giving her shit, and he, like me, can't understand why everyone is so obsessed with baseball. And I hate when I relate to Stegman. <laughs> <laughs> I I really liked this one moment in this scene where he's mocking her for crying over the game. And he tells her, say it ain't so, Joe. Because that is a line from a baseball movie called Eight Men Out. That's a, a, film, ah! that's a film about the 1919 White Sox who threw the World Series for money. What? <laughs> I think I saw that's... that on Drunk History. Oh my God, that's crazy. I <laughs> you thought... probably did. <laughs> I thought what was most funny about that is Stegman is the only person here from Boston. Right? <laughs> the only human being in Boston to not be a baseball fan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and we find out what those pamphlets are for. I talked about them on uh, the episode when she finds the gun in his desk. Yeah, she's so she's trying to play it off like the game isn't what's wrong and what she needs is a romantic getaway to Salem. Here's all the pamphlets. Here's the farmer's market because clearly Stegman is a farmer's market kind of dude. For sure. And they start making out and Stegman, along with a few other doctors, are called to the OR. And now we know why Stegman's always rushing out of surgery. A breathless and unbuttoned Brenda tells him to hurry back. (laughs) (laughs) An unbuttoned and breathless Brenda. That that is a description that will haunt me. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Very very Harlequin romance. (laughs) We're in the OR with Elmer, Massengale, Gupta, Stegman, Nurse Carrie, and some others, including Blondie, who I can only assume has learned that hanging out in the OR means free lunch but (laughs) not this time because odo whisks him away hook arrives and he taunts stegman with mona's mom and that was satisfying (laughs) uh so some interesting things happen in this scene uh one we find out that the bullet is still in candleton's head there's no egg it just it went in and it's bouncing around and did a bunch of damage but he's still alive So it's up to them to save them. And Gupta recognizes who this guy is and will not shut up about the fact that like, hey, this is, remember, this is the guy that that cost the Robins the World Series because that's all anybody ever uh, talks about when it comes to him. And he keeps calling him instead of Earl, he calls him Error. That's how he refers to him as Error over and over. And he, he says he and his brother ceremoniously burned their baseball cards of him when they were eight. Yeah. 
And he also drops a hint. He says that he heard a rumor that he was in Kingdom Hospital before, but he doesn't know why. I missed that. I assumed a baseball wound of some kind from being pummeled in public. <laughs> yeah, and, the, and that's the second time that uh, that we've heard that because Otto says it up front. That's right, yeah. During this, Hook is trying to prep him for the surgery and there's this really quick flash as Gupta is talking about uh, calling him error and we see this quick flash. I had to pause it to like really see what it is and it's Hook's porn with a fresh grave for Dr. Gupta. And he basically says, you're not going to call him error in my presence. That's, this is, that's the last time you'll call him by his name and show some respect. Yeah. And then Elmer starts uh, looking at his eyes, how they're moving and respond responds. Hey, look, could he be dreaming? Well, yeah, they don't tape his eyes down. They don't sew them shut. (laughs) So Massengale sees that and she is very intrigued and she wants to put him in the scanner and hook is like no he needs to be in the icu i i liked his line here where he says his dreams are nobody's business but his own yeah i thought that was that was kind of a nice touch well it's incredible she says that it's strange for somebody who has undergone so much brain trauma to be producing uh, rem sleep yeah and during all this time while they're talking about it, Elmer still finds a way to be douchier every episode, and he <laughs> pockets the bullet that they pull out of his head like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> that was a cool scene of pulling the bullet out. I liked that because I like horror. So anytime there's blood, I'm like, cool. <laughs> that was cool. I like a good surgery scene. <laughs> it's a good thing that Massingale cannot put him in the machine because we are about to spend some time in Earl's version of Old Kingdom, which is a spooky and dark baseball stadium. Old Kingdom can look like whatever it wants. It's for each person. Yeah, and his is specifically the stadium where he lost the World Series for the Robins. And he's still being pelted with ghost balls, even here. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's... I mean, ghost baseballs, not ghost balls because <laughs> that would be too sexy <laughs> too sexy is not how i would describe it but it is how you would describe it yes so this leads to my favorite part of the episode the horror glory shot <laughs> horror money shot i messed this up before i can't remember anyway earl finds a hole in the wall and he starts to put what? his no that's a that's the, no wait no. that's not nope. what other things yeah other thing <laughs> oh he runs into his ex and she's all, uh, she looks like she was murdered and then dumped in a river and was partially eaten by fish and was decomposing. And then now she's sitting here kind of moist. Yeah. Moist is a good descriptive word for really what cool. she looked like. She had that really, uh, what did it remind me of? Evil dead. Yes. That very that dead-eye look. Yes. Very dead-eye look. And I really dug it very tangible like you can you can imagine how she feels just by looking at her yeah <laughs> spongy <And> you <laughs> very, very yeah yeah like if, oh. like if you grab her you're gonna want to wear gloves Ooh, and she's taunting him as well 
and she opens her mouth and I didn't expect this. It was so well done. A tarantula crawls out of her mouth and like it ain't nothing. She's just (laughs) sitting there. It's so awesome. (laughs) She seems really thrilled that tarantula is coming out of her mouth too. Yeah. She knows she's felt it like wiggling around in there for so long. (laughs) Oh, just had to get this out. Yeah. Oh god. That was I yeah, I totally did not expect that when it came crawling out, I like jerked back like just so grossed out but it was so cool earl does the only sensible thing one can do and he runs like hell well another corpse shows up and starts pelting baseballs at him again (laughs) yeah he runs into a zombie cop it's this is just a like kind of the worst version of old kingdom in my opinion that we've seen so far and this scene is so cool too because he runs into presumably an office and he finds paul in the sensory deprivation tank, which would have been so much more bonkers to see if, Josh, you hadn't revealed that Paul died in a sensory <laughs> deprivation tank earlier. But he starts singing, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. But he's changed the lyrics to be very uh, Candleton specific. Do you have them? Because I didn't I, write them down. I, I do. He, uh, he replaces and one, two, three strikes you're out with you missed the ball and buddy, that's all. At the <laughs> old ball game. Oh, it's so good. It's a real good taunt. Yeah, and he's singing underwater too, which is really cool. That was, I think that was very effectively creepy because he, you just see the bubbles come out as he's talking and you hear him with virtually no distortion. It's like, there's just a little bit to let you know that it's coming, supposedly coming from inside, but the fact that it's as clear as it is, is so (laughs) creepy. Right. Let's leave Earl for a moment and cut back to the Rickmans. Peter appears to be in a trance, and he is drawing something very creepily, by the way. Uh, so before we get to the the part where he's drawing, I just want to go back real briefly to the very, very beginning when we're getting that montage of everybody watching the World Series. There's this really great moment where we've talked about the the connection that Peter and Natalie have, uh, where they just seem so in sync, and they're like, that's why their relationship is pretty adorable there's a moment where peter is i don't remember what the line he says but he's like thinking about the game and or he he's replying to mary in his head and natalie turns and looks at him and asks him if he just said something which i just thought that was a real cool nod to how powerful their connection is that she's kind of starting to pick up on on his because mary asked if the robins are going to win he says i don't know mary Mm -hmm. yeah I just thought that was a real neat uh, build in their relationship. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. That was a really cool piece. And we've seen them do that so many times, but I don't think we've ever explicitly talked about it. Mm -hmm. So Peter is drawing Earl, or a baseball player. But we assume it's Earl, although Sally doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) So Mary and Aunt Bear ask Peter to come with them again, and they're going to try to save Earl. And they have to hurry, because as we cut back to our doctors... We find out that Massingale is going to get her brain scans with or without anyone's permission. So let's talk about this scene with the fMRI machine. Now, um, my question to you guys, we will we'll find out shortly why this is the case, but all we're getting information-wise is that uh, Candleton is lost in the in-between, and if they do this MRI, he'll be trapped there. 
did either of you have an idea of like what about getting an MRI while he was in the in-between might trap him there? Sally mentions the magnetic fields and the radio wave pulses as being an issue. And that's all that we get. Yeah, that's all I picked up. Yeah, that's I, that's what I assume too. I mean, we find out the real reason is a little darker. Yeah. But <laughs> but yeah, I, I thought that was a, a, a nice clever misdirect as to uh, it not just being some, oh, an MRI, the magnetism will throw his soul mm-hmm. into disarray, <laughs> which is what I thought was going to happen. <laughs> I, I do like Sally does a lot of like bursting into rooms in this episode. <laughs> yes, she does. <laughs> she sure does. <laughs> so she, she first bursts in to the Rickman's room and that's when she sees the drawing and she's trying to warn them. And then she like pops into the fMRI room and she's telling them, you can't do this. He'll be trapped. And they try to get rid of her and she pops back in and Stegman arrives. And this is weird because Instead of like appealing to his ego, and it's very obvious that you could do that pretty successfully, she's like, you're a horrible doctor (laughs) and psychic wacky lady stuff. I have to do this because Crystal's told me. Instead of just saying this is an expensive and unnecessary procedure, because he would have been like, ah, forget it, or acting like she really wanted him to have the scan, then he probably would have been like, well, if Sally Druce wants this, then I disagree. (laughs) That would have been a much better strategy to demand he get an MRI and then see if Stegman fought him yeah. on it. And this kind of goes back to that initial scene when Earl pulled the trigger. We cut to Sally, who is sensing what's going on. How did Mary know at that point that they were going to put him into the machine? He wasn't even at the hospital yet. He had just killed himself unless the episode just wasn't following as linear time as it looked like it was. No, yeah. because because Sally is walking away from the radio after the Robins lose, complaining about how they always seem to mess it up when she gets that warning. So unless she's kind of like jumped to the future a little bit, I don't see how, how it could be going nonlinear like that. Yeah, maybe, well, maybe that sense isn't Mary warning her. I mean, Mary says that she warned Sally right before Sally shows up. But maybe that was just her sensing. I mean, to be honest, this gunshot happens almost literally across the street from the hospital. So maybe something like she just kind of senses that um, the Swedenborgian disturbance is what she calls it. (laughs) That moment that he is trapped in a purgatory state. Yeah, that's true. Um, I guess we've sort of discovered in previous episodes, too, that the whatever this force or experiences it extends outside of the hospital grounds cm what did you think of i know what you're gonna ask me (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna ask you guys no i i need to ask you (sighs) how did you feel about lona's strategy of getting elmer to help her trying to seduce him i much preferred when she was forceful slapping him around but as we know with elmer any attention is like a foot in the door. doesn't matter if it's good or bad. He's going to see it the way he wants to see it. So I think that she's damned if she does and damned if she doesn't. Well, they already banged it out. I, I just, I don't like it. <laughs> and the only thing that made it even remotely okay was that they kiss and Peter and Mary come into the room and 
Peter's like, uh, Mary, this isn't for kids. Maybe you shouldn't be looking at this. And she's like, bitch, please. <laughs> and she's called for reinforcements because that's when Sally bursts right. in to ruin the mood. <laughs> or I mean, remember, uh, she may look young, but she's like 100 years old. Yeah. I'm just wondering if there's going to be any implication because because uh, Gupta saw them kissing. Oh. And I don't know how public she wants this to be. Especially, I don't know. I just, I kind of thought it was shitty. Uh, I've kind of only liked Lona. Like, there's nothing that's really made me root for her any of this time. It's been great watching her shut down Elmer. But she hasn't really been a character to root for, I don't think. And seeing her take this turn to get what she wants... Uh, I don't know. It's it's definitely made me second guess my feelings about her character. Especially since Elmer's showing kind of a remorse for going along with her plan in the first place and bringing him here. Okay, do you think that's remorse or do you think it's because right now he's caught up in that in between Hook and Stegman and Hook said take him to the ICU. Yeah, and, and Hook knows that uh, he's the one that did the severed head prank so yeah so i wonder if this is more about covering his own ass than it is about any sort of loyalty that's fair and he's still been pretty aggressive with her even after that incident he did not let up really right i don't i think it's an unkind thing to do to what otherwise might have been a strong female character which we don't have enough of So Sally goes off to find Hook and appeal to him, presumably by telling him he sucks at his job because she's so charming. (laughs) But instead of that happening, he does some research and he figures out that Earl has a pacemaker so they cannot put him in this machine. Hook to save the day. When it goes back and forth between all this, it cuts whenever it cuts back to the MRI room, there's always something wrong. Like, oh, we need to... This electrode isn't working. Get me a new electrode. Oh, his head is sliding off the thing. Go readjust his head. So there's all these little delays that are kind of pushing our, our clock together. When Elmer reaches in to reset Candleton's head, he forgets that he still has the bullet in his pocket. And the bullet goes right against the machine because it's a powerful magnet. So when they were bringing him in there, uh, Lona asked if he removed all the metal from him watches and everything else and uh i wrote the note uh she she asked elmer if elmer removed all metal from his persons but he's elmer so you know he didn't (laughs) (laughs) oh my god uh i'm gonna i'm gonna drop some medical knowledge on you guys in case you didn't know okay so part of my job i have to take an mri uh safety test every year Part of that covers what is called quenching the MRI, which is what has to happen if, say, uh, a a patient gets stuck to the machine by something metal or some sort of metal object. Because you can't. Do you work Hmm? in a sexy hospital? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, obviously I work. It's the only kind of hospital I I would go to is a sexy hospital. That's like a medical-based romance novel title. Yeah. Yeah, I only wear the top half of my scrubs. (laughs) Okay, moving on. So, in order... Remind me to visit you at work sometime. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's... I've just taken what they gave me for pants and used those as face masks. 
<laughs> but if you need a face mask, you can buy a Dairy Public Radio face mask. There's a link on our Facebook, and we'll post another link when we post this episode. Wow, mid-episode product placement. Bam! Good segue. <laughs> okay, so the point I'm trying to make is that in order to get that bullet out, which they have to do to make the machine functional, is they have to quench the system, which means demagnetizing the entire thing. Like, they hit this button and it releases all the magnetism. It is a fucking bitch. It costs about $50,000 to remagnetize those machines, and they're down for a month, maybe two months. So Elmer's little fuck up is a like massive, massive fuck up. Oh, <laughs> oh that makes me hate Elmer even more. <laughs> 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 All right, we're going to cut back to Mary and Peter. She's begging him to come with her and help Earl before it's too late. So they go off to the old kingdom. And the rest of the episode, we cut back and forth from Mary and Peter trying to help Earl to this debacle with the machine. And it's a really effective way to build tension in the show, but not in a podcast. <laughs> so that's why we're doing it a little bit different. Uh, we've already talked about the doctors, the trouble they're having. Meanwhile, Peter and Mary find Earl and Paul is still in the tank. And he's like, get out of here. I'm naked. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think he has any shame about it. No, he doesn't. He yeah. is just... He just wants Earl for Dr. Gottright, I guess, which is a very interesting reveal here by Mary. She assures Peter that Paul can't hurt them because he has to spend time in the tank to recharge. And he seems to retain awareness of what's happening in New Kingdom, even from this sensory deprivation tank, which I thought was kind of cool. And he assures Peter and Mary that they're going to scan Earl and he's going to be Gottright's assistant soon enough. Yeah, I so we know from the book that that tank is where Paul died, which is why it makes sense that that's where he'd have to go back to to recharge for whatever reason, and that he was put there under Gottreich's orders. I'm wondering if Gottreich, we haven't gotten a lot of him in this show, and frankly, we're in episode 9 out of 13, so I don't know how much Gottreich we are going to get. But he seems to be that that quintessential boogeyman of the old kingdom. And so I think the logic here is essentially Paul saying if he stays and is a new person trapped here, maybe I can get Gottreich to torture this guy instead of torturing me. Hmm, that could be. It would be interesting if up to this point we had had flashbacks of some of Gottwright's handiwork because that would build a lot of suspense and tension for what we might imagine ghost Gottwright is like. I cannot imagine what we would be thinking had it not been for that book at this point because of how little we've gotten of Gottwright. Yeah. I, I figured by this point we'd know a little bit more or he'd be elaborated on. I, honestly, if we were just watching this straight through, I don't know if I would have picked up that character yet yeah I'd he was so just brief. be making wild speculations about sepia doctor <laughs> peter mary and earl join hands and time reverses then freezes and mary and peter are at the game right before earl missed the ball and mary explains that this time it's going to start again and earl has another chance and he catches the ball and the robins win the world series 
And I was like, oh, okay. So he's sort of working through this major thing that happened in his life and he's going to get closure and move on. No, this was actually time travel because we cut back to our doctors and they are in the lab staring at an empty machine and they're all like, what are we doing here? And only Peter and Mary seem to remember what happened, which leads to the biggest question in the episode, because if he went back in time and changed that, how are they all in that room together? Are we talking butterfly effect, parallel realities, Terminator, back to the future? All I could think of was time paradox, temporal, causal loops, Fermi, Newcomb. So can I just go through these real quick, real briefly? Please. I want your theories, your choice. Okay. So you guys and our listeners might have passing or extensive knowledge about different paradox, but I'm just going to briefly explain a couple of them. So causal, a future a future event causes the past event, which is the cause of the future event. Both events exist, but what is their origin? Grandfather paradox, uh, changing the past creates a contradiction. And this one's pretty well known. It's It got its name, Grandfather Paradox, from the idea that if you go back in time and fuck your grandma, you're now your own grandpa. (laughs) Or if you kill your own grandpa, you were never born, so you never went back in time to kill your grandpa. Fermi Paradox, if there's time travel, why haven't we seen time travelers? Maybe they disguise themselves. Newcomb's Paradox, and this deals with the perfect predictor of the future and free will, So perfect predictions contradict free will because decisions made with free will are already known to perfect predictors. And then my favorite, time cop theory. The same matter cannot exist in the same space at the same time. If it does, you get a gruesome CGI blood meat monster. (laughs) I'm glad you've both seen time cop. (laughs) Time Cop's a classic. <laughs> Time Cop is a classic. I was watching the the follow uh, uh, what's it Roland Emmerich's follow up to Time Cop last night, Stargate, which is a film I love. <laughs> nice. So going back to my question, if Earl went back in time and he changes the course of history, how do we have this scene where all of the doctors come to and they're in the same spot doing about the same thing, but they don't know what they're doing or why? Okay, here's here's what's gonna happen. Hear me out. I feel like this isn't going to be serious because it'll look on your face. It's got the biggest <laughs> shit-eating grin. <laughs> okay, so what do we know about Stephen King time travel? One, you cannot hold two timelines in your head without feeling like you're splitting apart, which means Mary and Peter's heads are going to explode. Yep. <laughs> it also, thanks to the Langoliers, we know that meatballs eat the past. So what's going to happen is next episode picks up fresh in the new timeline. The doctors we saw at the end of this episode will eventually be eaten by meatball monsters as the Langoliers eat the second timeline out of existence. So I would love if the next episode we record it's supposed to be number 10, but we just start talking about the Langoliers. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I mean, in the Stephen King universe, I think I nailed it. I, you know what? 
That was perfect, Josh. Paul, can you beat that or should I, we move I'm going to go with the greatest explanation of time travel I have ever seen in a movie. And it's a movie we'll be covering on Drinking Age Movies in, in a week or two. Mid-episode plug. Yeah, there we go. Uh, you got one. I should get one, right? Yeah. <laughs> on your show. <laughs> um, and that the, the explanation comes from the movie. Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me. Oh, and it's, yes. hey, just don't think about it. Have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> if there's any lesson we can take away from the Austin Powers franchise, it's that. It is absolutely that. Having watched all three of them in the, about the last week and a half, that is absolutely the best lesson I took from them. I was a teenager when that movie came out, and it was the h- most hilarious thing that I'd ever seen in my entire life as a teenager. I got to call this one a tie. You both did an amazing <laughs> job. Yes. Nailed so, it. I'd, there's no one else I'd rather tie with than Paul Warfin. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it only makes sense. We are the same person. Right. <laughs> so we end this episode with the Robins losing this present game. But Natalie Rickman says, it's okay. We'll always have 87. So I understand then, that you guys have some special knowledge for us. about. Well, I also want to point out that not only... Did they win the World Series? But Earl Candleton is mayor now. Uh, yeah, and he was the MVP of the 1987 World yeah. Series. And I'm going to say this, uh, the notes we're about to give. Uh, I watched this episode twice. And the second time I cried like a baby when that when that thing came on. <laughs> Not even a shame. Okay, but there's there only this is the only thing. And I don't want to ruin this for you, Paul. Okay. But we, as the audience, love the fact that he's the MVP because we know what happened when he didn't make the catch. Right. To everybody else in the world, as we talked about, that's the most mundane catch everybody should ever make. <laughs> so I don't know if that catch is MVP I mean, worthy. It's game seven, so we don't know how well he performed throughout that's the rest true. of the series. I mean, he could, have been, yeah, he could have been knocking dingers through games one through six and... <laughs> Then that's even more tragic that missing that catch took him down so far. Yeah, exactly. You guys, I'm blacking out. (laughs) (laughs) I'll prepare for this. Hold on. I'm going to text your husband. I told him to have the gun ready (laughs) for when we get to this part of the show. All right. He should be on his way in with the revolver now. Yeah, thanks. Should we do some Foley work to make it sound like he's coming in? (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll add it later. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so we talked about earlier that the the New England Robins are a stand-in for the Boston Red Sox. And uh, Paul, I knew the moment this was so surrounded by baseball. You're the biggest baseball fan I know. Uh, so I had to have you on to talk about this. Would you kind of give us a little bit of background on, uh, on the Red Sox and, and the curse? Okay, so the Red Sox curse is the second weirdest curse in the history of baseball. Um, And it starts with a little known player named Babe Ruth, (laughs) uh, who was one of the Red Sox star players until uh, their owner sold him to the New York Yankees so that he could produce a Broadway musical called No, No, Nanette. Which, coincidentally, was the very first musical I was ever in. (laughs) (laughs) What a paradox. (laughs) (laughs) 
Were, were you in that production? The original? I was, I was not in the original production. Not, <laughs> oh, sorry. I was not in a time the Sherrard High School production. Oh, okay. The, the first musical I was ever in was Oliver. We also we also sold a baseball player to make that show happen. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You Sherrard High School have ties to the Quad City River Bandits? <laughs> yes. <laughs> this then becomes what is referred to as the Curse of the Bambino. Babe Ruth's nickname, the Great Bambino. And uh, from 1918 on through 2004, the Red Sox do not win a single World Series in that 86 years. And every time it comes back to this curse. Now, specifically what this episode is going for is the 1986 World Series where the Boston Red Sox play the New York Mets. And a the first baseman, whose name was Bill Buckner, who was like a hitting champion in his years in the league. He's 36 years old at this point, not having a great series himself. He's batting very poorly. And I mean, he's doing okay uh, defensively, you know, as his first baseman. But in game six of the World Series, Boston has one strike left to, to win it. Then the pitcher puts two men on base, uh, with wild pitches, which is where the pitch goes behind the catcher, and then the runners are allowed to steal. And nobody blames that pitcher. Everybody, <laughs> they bring in a new pitcher, and there is a routine grounder going towards Bill Buckner from the last batter, and it gets through Buckner's legs, behind the bag, met score. Uh, and then, it, unlike this, that's game six and it goes to a game seven and then they lose it in game seven. They don't even win it. They have one more chance to win it. And they lose it then. <laughs> and Bill Buckner is still the one who becomes the most infamous out of this series, which is insanity. It's so tragic. Like, I watched, I watched the replay of that ball. Just take a weird bounce. Yeah. And go right under his glove. And it is the most heartbreaking thing I've ever seen. You guys, I'm starting to feel like Brendan Fraser and Blast from the Past when Christopher Walken is trying to explain baseball to him, but he can't grasp it because he's never seen it. So to me, this episode is Stephen King, lifelong Red Sox fan. This is his apology to Bill Buckner for the years of abuse he had to suffer at the hands of rabid fans that wouldn't let this one moment die. That wasn't even the moment that cost them the entire series. It just cost him game six he yeah and so uh in relation to this paul you had me watch the movie fever pitch with jimmy fallon and drew barrymore <laughs> yes it did where in a world series it's no it's not in the world series game it's, it's the opening opening game in the, in the, movie. the opening game of the red sox stephen king throws out the first pitch and you didn't tell me this was going to happen. So when it happened, I lost my mind. <laughs> I like to leave surprises. Um, yeah. There's I, So I don't know if you read anything about that, but Stephen, that was a setup cameo. That wasn't just Stephen King being at the ballpark that day. The, the Fairley brothers who directed the film invited Stephen King out to throw an actual opening pitch, ceremonial first pitch at a baseball game. And Stephen King said, I don't know, man. This doesn't sound like a good idea. <laughs> I'm afraid something's going to happen. The Red Sox were on a winning streak at the point. 
they lost that game and people blame Stephen King. For oh it. no. Oh. <laughs> oh, I wonder, I wonder if part of that, he acknowledged there's a part in this episode where you hear the radio playing and it, the announcer says like a twist out of a Stephen King novel, they lose. So no, uh, because this episode was shot in 2003 yeah it, it aired april 29th 2004 and that game was played september 4th 2004 oh my god and so this was this episode was released the year that the red sox won the world series that the red sox won the world series so stephen king rewrites history for the red sox apologizes to bill buckner not knowing that the red sox are going to win this year so Stephen King reversed the curse of the Bambino. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of really weird things that happened in 2004 that people kind of give, give partial credit to the band dropkick Murphy's released a song called Tessie, which is an old, uh, an old Boston Red Sox, like fight song. And they record a cover of it and release it as a single in 2004 before the Red Sox win the world series. And a you lot of people give that credit. You know what else happened in 2004? What's that? I performed in No No Nanette. <laughs> <laughs> That's so weird. That is I, so weird. I won the World Series Good for job, the Boston Josh. Red Sox. I did it, guys. I did it. Okay. One more thing that I, uh, this is something, oh God, if we have Red Sox fans, they're going to get mad at me. But send me an email. I'd love to talk about it. Red Sox fans are so angry about their time between winning World Series. 86 years. People were 80. born and died of old age in the time that that happened. I have been a Cubs fan all my life. That's 108 years 108. between World Series. By uh that's 108 years. Several people, like them and their children, died between <laughs> them winning World Series. And Correct. I I never complained as much as Boston Red Sox fans complain about their team not winning. I th- I th- and it's 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 kind of a weird comparison because I always feel like the Cubs really enjoyed being the lovable losers. Whereas the Red Sox had the Yankees just right down the road. And the, okay, Yankees, yeah. the Yankees just pummeled them year after year. And it just, it's just a lot of bitterness. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's, I guess that's true. I mean, if the Cubs curse was attributed to the Cardinals, the way the Cardinals won all those world series, I'd, I'd say that the Cubs would probably be as angry as them, but CM, do you want to hear a fun story about a, a sports curse? Yeah. Do you want to know who the Cubs attribute their curse to? <laughs> Shut up. The owner of a burger restaurant called the Billy Goat Tavern in Chicago, Illinois, <laughs> who brought his goat to a game and they said, you can't bring that goat in here. And he said, fuck you guys. I hope you never win again. <laughs> <laughs> when they won the World Series, the amount of photos of goats with a W on the side of the goat <laughs> that I saw made my heart so happy. I had no idea that baseball was so superstitious and now i might kind of be able to get into it it's it's the most superstitious sport probably ever it really is it is unreal how much superstition is in baseball yeah uh and i can't tell you how many times you'll find me at a game when my team's losing wearing the rally cap so 
You know what? Uh, we'll, we're going to get more of this because eventually on the show, we're going to talk about Blockade Billy. So we're going to get more baseball. All right. Can I give you a, a, a couple real quick notes? Yeah. Okay. So this episode aired on April 29th, 2004, uh, 25 days after uh, the Red Sox opening day. And they played a double header against the Devil Rays that day. They won both games. Nice. Early game was four to zero. Late game was seven to three. Uh, and uh, in the present day World Series that everybody's listening to in the hospital, they lose to the Cardinals. Who did the Red Sox beat for the World Series that year? The Cardinals. The Cardinals. <laughs> That's great. That's that is wild to me. And not only do they do not only do they beat the Cardinals, they sweep the Cardinals. The Cardinals don't win a single game against them after the Red Sox in the American league championship series bounce back from a three Oh deficit to win four straight games. So they win eight straight games to win the world series, which no team in history has ever done ever. The man who helps uh, organize the Red Sox team that breaks the curse. It's a man named Theo Epstein. He was their general manager at the time. He, uh, he leaves the Red Sox goes to the Cubs. Oh shit. It's fucking great. And much like baseball, we're at the bottom of the ninth. So that is it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us for our next episode as we cover episode 10 of Kingdom Hospital on the third day. For Joshua Cott, oh, for CMS. <laughs> Sorry. Damn it. I was doing so good there for a second. Honorable. Yeah, I was thinking Paul Workman. <laughs> and I said my name. For CM Alexander and Paul Workman, I'm Joshua Khan reminding you, you haven't made errors of your own yet, but you will. And when you do, you'll want mercy. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thank you for listening to part nine of Kingdom Hospital. We hope you enjoyed it. A couple of exciting things to share with you here. First, if you haven't seen our social media pages, we have face masks now with our Dairy Public Radio logo on them. Please check out the link for those, or you can find us on threadless.com. We also recently guest starred on the awesome show Crop Tales, where we were taught how to make some refreshing summer drinks, and it was a lot of fun, so please check that out. Please rate and review us on iTunes if you have a minute, and instead of donating to us on our PayPal or anything like that, please instead donate to Southern Poverty Law Center. They are an amazing organization. They help fight hate and bigotry, and they really do a lot of great work for a lot of people who don't always have someone to help them. Stay safe, everyone. Goodbye.